Welcome to Pure Nonfiction. I'm your host, Tom Powers, interviewing documentary storytellers. In this episode, we bring you a conversation with the filmmakers behind Making a Murderer, the 10-hour Netflix series that explores a controversial homicide case in rural Wisconsin. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at New York's IFC Center on February 25th, 2016. I would say yes, there were many times where we thought he, he could be guilty. I mean, the first scene we showed, we show up at the prelim, they've got all of this really terrifying evidence. It's quite convincing. That has an effect on us. We are swayed by those stories just as everybody is. At the heart of this documentary is Stephen Avery, who spent 18 years in prison, convicted for a sexual assault that he didn't commit. Thanks to DNA evidence, he was exonerated and he brought a $36 million civil suit against Manitowoc County and its officials for mishandling his case. Avery became a high-profile champion for changing the justice system in Wisconsin. Then came a shocking twist. In 2005, Avery was charged with the murder of Teresa Halbach, a young photographer whose body parts were found in the salvage yard where Avery lived. At the time, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos were graduate film students at Columbia University. They read about Avery's case in the New York Times, and the story captured their attention. They would spend the next 10 years documenting the Avery case, homing in on irregularities, convincing many viewers that Avery once again got an unfair trial. Making a Murderer had its world premiere at the Doc NYC Festival in November 2015, and was released in December on Netflix. Since then, it has spawned endless debates over Avery's guilt or innocence. When I sat down with Laura and Moira, I wasn't looking to rehash forensic details of the trial. I wanted to know how they pulled off this epic story and what do they want viewers to take away? If you never watched Making a Murderer or need a refresher, I'll fill in some background along the way. During the years they spent on Making a Murderer, the directors took outside jobs to get by. Moira as a union electrician for film and TV, and Laura in her original profession as a lawyer. At the start, they had no funding, but they did have time to invest. Here's Laura describing those early days. You know, we tried to assess what our assets were and try to make the most of them and not be, you know, um, not be encumbered too much by you know what we didn't have or what our obstacles were. So um, so we decided to move to Manitowoc County um, about a month after we shot the prelim and really wanted to try to become part of the community and because we thought that that would just enrich the story, that we, we would develop meaningful relationships with people. So much of this is about building trust and a rapport with your subject. Um, because we knew that this was going to be a really harrowing journey. I can imagine that Stephen Avery's family was pretty wary of the media, and you guys come along as outsiders. Moira, how did you get them to open up to you? I think Laura wrote a letter to Stephen, and from there we had a phone call with Stephen and had an opportunity to talk about who we were and why we were interested in trying to tell this story. And my recollection is that he then told his mother that, you know, you should meet these women 
and sit down with them. And I think it was a week after that that we went out and we met with Dolores and her son Chuck. And I think a few days after that, we did our first shoot with them later in episode three when they're showing the hate mail that the family is getting. That was our first shoot with them. But it's interesting what you say because you know, the fact that we were, we were outsiders, we weren't part of this media ecosystem in the town. And with some people in the town, that meant they wanted nothing at all to do with us. With other people, that was exactly a reason to find out more about us. But also, as Laura mentioned, you know, the fact that we were there and um, stayed there, and so we were there the next week and the next week, and you know, that we weren't going anywhere, they weren't seeing the interviews up on the news. Laura, when you first approached this story, what did you think was at stake? You know, when we first read about Stephen Avery in the New York Times, you know, we thought his story was unprecedented. Here was a man who had been failed by the system. He was one of Wisconsin's first DNA exonerees. And, you know, when he was finally released from prison in 2003, he became a catalyst for change in that state. I mean, Stephen Avery was the reason there was meaningful reform happening in that state. And the focus of it was police practices, essentially. And, um, and then, you know, the attorney general launched an investigation. It had no teeth, essentially, or the attorney general <laughs> just punted, essentially. And that was a big letdown. And Stephen decided to bring a lawsuit in order to hold, try to hold the people he believed had, had purposely wronged him accountable so that they would never do that again and that, you know, there wouldn't need to be other Penny Burnsons or other women like the woman Gregory Allen attacked while Stephen Avery was serving Gregory Allen's sentence. So, you know, that alone, that part of the story alone would have warranted, I think, <laughs> very long treatment. But then to have that very person who's on the ascent, who's a catalyst for change, who's in a position to improve the system, immediately be taken down by accusation and physical evidence that you see at the uh, preliminary hearing just made us think like this is this is like the greatest gift to us as filmmakers. We want to see this guy is he's been pulled back into the system and we want to know whether it's the same system or, or whether there's been any meaningful change beyond DNA technology or legislative reforms. Now, you were filming these cases as they're ongoing. How did that affect your approach? Well, I, I, I'm not the lawyer, but I did learn a lot <laughs> making this series. But, um, you know, it was a very unique situation. These were pending cases. I mean, the civil suit was still a pending case when we started um, filming. And then it, it, in fact, settled, which when a civil suit settles, the people accused admit no liability. There's nothing been proved. So there were lots of parameters that we had to stay within when doing interviews, you know, we were never, we never asked anybody about the facts of the case. As I mentioned earlier, we were documenting people's experience, the experience of being accused or the experience of being a defense investigator or, or a legislator. Just what is their slice of this story? You were not trying to solve this case yourself. Solving the case was not our role whatsoever. We were there to document the process and record everything we could and share that. More than four months after Teresa Holbach's death, the special prosecutor in the case, Ken Kratz, gave a press conference 
widely publicized in the region. He told reporters that Stephen Avery's 16-year-old nephew, Brendan Dassey, had made a confession revealing what happened. Here's an excerpt from the press conference that was widely televised. We have now determined what occurred sometime between 3.45 p.m. Uh, and 10 or 11 p.m. on the 31st of October. 16-year-old Brendan Dassey, who lives next door to Stephen Avery in a trailer, returned home on the bus from school about 3.45 p.m. He retrieved the mail and noticed one of the letters was for his uncle, Stephen Avery. As Brendan approaches the trailer, as he actually gets several hundred feet away from the trailer, a long, long way from the trailer, Brendan already starts to hear the screams. As Brendan approaches the trailer, he hears louder screams for help, recognizes it to be of a female individual, and he knocks on Stephen Avery's trailer door. In Making a Murderer, we later learn that Brendan Dassey may have invented significant portions of his story under coercion. But Kratz skillfully used the media to shape his case before putting Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey on trial. I asked Laura and Moira about their relationship with the local media. Well, initially, we started out working in cooperation with one another. We covered all of the pretrial court proceedings for both Stephen and Brendan, as well as the trial. Um, and so the way it works in Wisconsin is there's Essentially, cameras are allowed in the courtroom, but the presiding judge decides how many. And so this particular judge, Judge Willis, and also Judge Fox, um, said that one camera would be allowed. So we could only get one angle in the courtroom. It was facing the bench and the witness. We were on the backs of the other subjects. And it was uh, one manned camera, broadcast quality camera. Someone from local news was shooting and sending a feed out to the rest of us. So we would just sort of patch in, get the feed, and have the entire proceedings for that day as our raw footage, and then decide to edit it down from there. But that's the main thing we were doing with them. But then we also began to treat the media as our subject. I mean, there were times where we were in sort of a scrum with them, like, <laughs> you know, when the attorneys or Mike Hallbuck would come out of court and we were, we were capturing what they had to say, but then we would also turn our cameras on the media because we wanted to give... We felt like they were such an internal force on the process that they needed to be characters, and we wanted to try to give them a character arc in the series as well. Did that affect your relationship when they saw the cameras pointed at them? I don't think it did, for the most part. I mean, it was a wonderful cooperation with them, pre-trial and trial, because, you know, I was always there with my little camera, and I'm about a foot shorter than all of the big cameramen, and, you know, but they would let me get in there or... Um, you know, help us out if we, especially at the trial, when we had a four-person crew to cover, you know, all of the trial proceedings. And I think, you know, they, they understood that, and we understood they had a different job than we did, and they understood that we were up to something very different than what they were, but I think there was mutual respect there. I've heard you talk about how the series The Staircase was an inspiration, but The Staircase was kind of an exceptional work. And I'm wondering... Since the marketplace wasn't really ready for this kind of multi-part series for most of the time you were making it, what kept you fixated on the idea that this could be a series? Pretty early on, we knew this couldn't be a 90-minute film. Really, just a few months into production, when Ken Kratz held his March 2nd press conference and 
Brendan had confessed to the crime and the entire case became more complicated, the family story became more complicated, and yeah, I mean, maybe then we could have done a three-hour feature, maybe. And in fact, you know, after initial production, so summer of 2007, starting to put together materials, um, we went to the IFW, the independent film market. All you can do is pitch features, so we're there pitching a feature. But we have outlines for a four-part series at the same time that we're doing that. Um, and I think, I think we spent a lot of energy trying to trying to sell it for what it really could never be, and then came to realize we just need to, we need to put that energy into making it. And we knew nobody was going to green light a series by Moira and Laura, who was going to do that. So, um, you know, by the time we took it to Netflix, you know, we had rough cuts of the first three episodes. We had sketches of episodes four and five. We had a 20-page outline of the entire series by scene. So, you know, we really had, we needed resources to complete it, but it was, in a way, all conceived and all finished. So we've got a question from the audience. Did you ever think that Stephen Avery could be guilty, and how was that reflected in the making of the film? I would say, I would say yes, there were many times where we thought he, he could be guilty. I mean, the, the first scene we showed, we show up at the prelim, they've got all of this really terrifying evidence um, it's quite convincing. Ken Kratz holds this press conference. You know, you see a trimmed down version, but it was a 45 minute narrative of this awful story of what had happened to Teresa Halbuck. I mean, that has an effect on us. We are, we are swayed by those stories just as everybody is. But maybe, maybe what would be helpful in answering your question too is that as we were making this, you know, we had no way of knowing whether Stephen did this or didn't do this, whether he would be convicted or acquitted. And you know, ultimately, that really didn't make any difference to the story that we were telling, which was, you know, how was he going to be treated in, in this journey through the system? So it really wasn't the question at hand as we were making it. Yeah, I mean, we chose Stephen to be our main subject. We knew we were going to go with him from one extreme of the American criminal justice system to the other. I mean, he was proclaiming his innocence. We knew he was going to trial. And what we really wanted to document was uh, this man's fight to prove his innocence and to uh, restore his reputation. We didn't know whether he would succeed, but we knew that what we were documenting was the experience of an accused in America. For eight years, Laura and Moira pushed the project on their own. Then in 2014, Netflix came on board. Suddenly, there was money to hire another editor. They selected Mary Manhart, who worked on documentaries like Street Fight and American Promise. Mary Manhart joined our conversation at the IFC Center. I asked, what were her impressions of the project when she came on board? Can you hear me? Is this working? Okay, so when I saw even the, the rough things, I was just like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is unbelievable. And I was transfixed <laughs> just watching rough cuts, which is not often the case, um, and, and totally absorbed. I mean, so I had my own little binge watching 
experience with rough cuts. Um, no, and then we talked, and I was like, this is unbelievable. Like, it was, sometimes you can see maybe here's a seed of something that's there that you, you want to develop that looks interesting. This, it was just there. Like, the story was so there. I mean, the, the, the first two episodes, which I, I worked on, were completely different in nature than three and four. And then once we got into the trial, which Moira did, um, the trial was totally different in nature. You know, that was a different sort of footage with some other stuff. And then 10, I did, and it was a totally different thing again. Um, so, so that was definitely a big change. I mean, when you're working generally in an hour and a half to two hour blocks, to think that someone could actually be sitting there for 10 hours or five hours or three hours, it's a different sort of thing. And the cliffhangy aspect of it was hard to get, as was the fact that on Netflix in a streaming situation, you don't need to reset at the beginning of each episode. You, the, the, presum the, the way that it's going to be viewed changes the way you cut it in subtle ways, but, but they're there. So not having to reset and, and remind everyone, well, here's where we're at, and here's where Steven is, and here's where Brendan is, because there was a week before, you know, since you last saw the episode. All of that stuff, it sounds like little mechanical things, but it's, it's a big, you know, you're talking about planting seeds for stuff that isn't going to come up for eight more hours or seven mm -hmm. more hours. Yeah, so it was a big adjustment, definitely. What stood out to you visually in this footage? One thing that was really important to me and another thing that really grabbed me, and I think this footage had just been shot or had just started to be incorporated into the rough cut of episode three or four that I saw before I came on, was the footage of the yard, the salvage yard itself. Um, you know, Moira was just talking about proxies, and it, it wasn't just people who were proxies, you know, the lawyers and the family into Brendan and, you know, on the phone calls into Brendan and Stephen's story, but it was also the buildings they were in, and it was also the, the salvage yard, which to me was just such a powerful metaphor for people who society doesn't care about, you know, it's just junk. So that was a really great visual thing for me. And it, it, it's just such, it feels so haunted and it changed over the years and that was a powerful thing. Another thing that uh, we, we talked about uh, is that it's all the same place, you know? It's all these dairy farms and it's the yard and it's the same courthouse. Moira pointed out to me this morning that, you know, when Stephen goes for his prelim, which was the first clip we saw, he's sitting in the same chair he sat in 20 years ago. It's the same stuff. And that is also a strong visual and metaphorical indicator of what's actually going on here. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're speaking to something that was very important to us, which was, you know, try to make the limitation of Stephen being locked away part of your aesthetic. And so we decided, you know, we wanted Manitowoc County to be a character. We wanted the Avery Salvage Yard to be a character. So the idea of location as character and then also taking the beautiful imagery you know, much of which Moira shot and Ira Singh, the incredible uh, cinematographer, and my sister Danielle Ricciardi, who was one of the camera people on the series, take that imagery and um, help that to evoke some of what Stephen was feeling, you know, while he was locked away and, and speaking to us. Moira, when did you begin editing? Were you editing during the process of filming? We were, yeah. Maybe not the very first moment, but pretty much ongoing while we were living in Wisconsin, 
we were dubbing our tapes so that we'd have a clean copy in case something went wrong. And then, you know, capturing our footage and starting to work with our footage. And some of that was to review what we had. Some of it was to submit grant applications. And But we were, we were editing scenes. I mean, there are scenes in the series that, you know, were edited in our, on our laptop in our apartment in Manitowoc County that they haven't changed a frame since 2006. Jody going back to the ransack trailer after she gets out of jail. I remember cutting those scenes to demonstrate that we had some verite footage. It wasn't all sit down. So, so we cut those scenes. And it's the same scenes that are eight years later in the series. An audience member is asking, was it difficult to obtain footage from other news sources? Yeah, that's a great question. I contacted a number of news directors, I think as many as I could find from the different news stations in Green Bay, Milwaukee, even Madison. Because we didn't start shooting till 2005, we were looking for footage to fill out everything that came before. And I had the experience time and time again of news directors literally hanging up on me. And I was quite shocked because I was offering to pay for their footage. So I, I had to try to wrap my head around why is this happening? And it really spoke to the atmosphere in which we were working. I mean, Stephen was merely accused at this time, but there was such hostility towards him. So did those news directors have a perception about where you were coming from? I don't know. You know, they didn't know me. I just was saying, this is who I am. This is what we're doing. You know, we'd like to license some of your footage. And, and I can only speculate, but I think that their motivation for sort of hanging up, it could be they were just proprietary about their footage. But I don't think that's it, because this happens all the time that news stations license their footage. I think that we were going to be showing a period in Stephen's life where he actually was a victim of the system. And I don't think anybody was interested in that narrative being told. Right. I mean, we were asking for the 2003-2004 footage, and that's what they didn't want to share. We have a question from the audience. What did the Averys think of the series? Well, it's interesting. Um, I've spoken to Mrs. Avery about it, and she and she waited for Mr. Avery to come back from Krivitz to watch it with him, and um, they were very pleased. And I think mainly because of how you know, how they're represented in it. They feel that it, you know, it captures who they are and their value system and what they're about, what their experience was. So they're appreciative and very positive about it. And spoken a little bit to Stephen about it, although he has not, he does not have access to the series. So he's just, I mean, strangely enough, he's heard from other inmates whose family members have watched the series, what those people think of it. But he was telling us recently that he's been receiving lots of encouraging letters and that people are commending us for our work on the series. And uh, he's just happy with it. So, Another question from the audience. How has the justice system responded to the series? You know, I, I'm not sure exactly how they've responded. Um, you know, I know, yes, Ken Kratz has spoken publicly with lots of things he has to say now. Um, but um, that we haven't heard directly from anybody in the Justice Department. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, Ken was, you know, I wrote a letter to Ken Kratz in September of 2006, which is actually part of the public case file. So if you'd like to read it, you can. Um, 
No, and I, I mean that seriously, because I'm really proud of that letter. <laughs> he, I did not receive a response from him, but you know, he did try to subpoena our footage two months later. So I think it would have been terrific if Ken Kratz had sat down with us. I mean, we wanted to hear from everyone. We wanted to talk to prosecutors, to judges, to the victim's family, uh, to Penny Bernson, and lots of people we considered key to the story declined, unfortunately. But the good thing was this was playing out, at least the Hallbuck case was playing out in a public forum, and we were there to capture that. So, you know, we still were able to include Ken Kratz's point of view in the series and Mike Hallbuck's because they were speaking publicly. You had a perspective that no one was telling in this case. And I wonder, in the long period of making it, if you ever had an urge to rush something out, like five years into the process, just to get something on the public record. Sure, we, we always were hoping we could get it done faster than, than we did get it done. But I don't think, at least for myself, I don't think I ever had the urge to try to you know, get an incomplete version or, or let's just push this through and get this out. I think partly because, you know, so much of even the, the um, original incentive to do it was what a unique and unprecedented opportunity this was. And I think it surpassed that from what we initially thought. And so what we were beginning to gather, we wanted to do it right. And we knew we only had one opportunity to do that. And so I don't think it was a question of, are we losing patience? Do we just want to get this out there? I think as, as outlets were not really presenting themselves to us, we just kept making it and, you know, we'll put this up on YouTube and get it out to the world. Like, it was a determination to finish it and finish it right that I think drove us and kept us going. It did at times get really difficult for Moira and me, partly because we're life partners as well. So it's like you're working on something that's so intense and so dark and so long and so complicated and trying to make it accessible to people and give people emotional access to it and then going home at night, um, you know, and talking about it and just living with it and really, you know, at time, feeling so alienated, too, from other people because, you know, our families were really concerned about us with good reason and wanted assurances from us that we really couldn't provide. So, you know, we just had to ask them to trust us and to support us and to hang in there, and, you know, they did. And the same with the Averys. You know, the Averys, we were never in a position, never never took on promising them anything except that we would represent them fairly and honestly. But we never took up Stephen's cause or Brendan's cause. And um, they, I think to a certain extent they understood that. But, you know, to this day I have Mrs. Avery calling me once a week, you know, and she was, all those years she would be calling and asking, when is this coming out? Because she didn't think that we were going to free Stephen necessarily, but she thought that people would finally hear their side of it, and she was really invested in that. And that was, those were the hardest calls I had through the years were with her. We'll be back with more of Making a Murderer in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by SundanceNow.club. Watch hundreds of documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers and guest curators such as Ira Glass, Laurie Anderson, and Susan Sarandon. 
This month on Doc Club, look for the collection of true crime films, including the groundbreaking series The Staircase and Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss. Download the Doc Club app or go to docclub.com to sign up for a free month. At the IFC Center, we were treated to another special guest visiting from Wisconsin, Stephen Glynn. He appears in early episodes of Making a Murderer as one of the attorneys who handled the appeal in Stephen Avery's first case. Here's a clip with Stephen Glynn from episode one. Nonetheless, the court ruled against us. The Court of Appeals ruled against us. Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled against us. And if you ever want to read an opinion, by the way, that will show you how strongly this system is designed to perpetuate a conviction, as opposed to examine whether or not somebody could, in fact, be innocent, read the Court of Appeals decision in Stephen Avery's case. You would think that this was the guiltiest person that had ever been uncovered in a criminal case in Wisconsin. I asked Stephen Glynn what this series has meant to Wisconsin's legal establishment. It's meant uh, a breath of air to those of us who have toiled in the trenches of criminal defense. Um, I, I spent 42 years as a criminal defense lawyer in state and federal court. I'm limiting my comments here to state court processes. But, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to group together because we all felt abused. And, uh, and in fact, I believe it's not paranoia when it's real. And uh, you see it when someone like Ken Kratz shows up. You see it when someone like this whole roster of deputy sheriffs and sheriffs shows up. You see it when a judge rules as though there is no possible other side to an issue. I mean, that's one of the things that makes lawyers crazy, is that judges, understandably for reasons of the system, have to rule in a way that makes it sound as though everything that the defense lawyer has done was for not just not, but for kind of negative not. It, it, it hasn't meant anything at all to that process. And this series has meant more to making defense lawyers and defense investigators have some pride in what they do and uh, renewed the passion that they've brought into the courtrooms. And I've taught lawyers for years in Wisconsin in the area of criminal defense. And one of the things that Dean will tell you I hammered people on was the process of making jurors get some sense of what reasonable doubt is. Because I don't think there's anybody in the world who can be honest about the Stephen Avery case, I'm talking about the Halbach homicide, and say that there's not reason to have doubt about a guilty verdict in that case. I mean, if you do, then there's something wrong with you, and you ought to see a doctor. <laughs> uh, but uh, 12 jurors came to a contrary position. It was Stephen Glynn who recommended the two defense lawyers who are most prominent in making a murderer, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, who handled Stephen Avery's defense in the Halbach murder case. From episode nine, here's Dean Strang. Most of what ails our criminal justice system 
lie in an unwarranted certitude on the part of police officers and prosecutors and defense lawyers and judges and jurors that they're getting it right, that they simply are right. Just a, a tragic lack of humility of everyone who participates in our criminal justice system. His comments are followed by Jerry Buting. We can all say that we're never going to commit a crime, but we can never guarantee that someone will never accuse us of a crime. And if that happens, then, you know, good luck in this criminal justice system. I asked Laura and Moira what they hoped audiences would take away from watching the series. As Laura was mentioning earlier, you know, we wanted to give our viewers an experience through watching these 10 episodes and wanted our viewers to learn a lot of what we had learned ourselves. And, um, you know, one of those things was just a, a much greater understanding of the complexities of these matters. That is, it's not simply about the evidence that comes into the courtroom that decides guilt and innocence in this country. There are so many other forces at play. And you know, one of the things we learned from Dean Strang, actually, and I think it's in the series, is you know, we talk about truth and justice. Those are the values of our, our system. But you know, what do we really mean by that? And a greater understanding that this process is not always a truth-revealing process. You cannot necessarily count on the truth emerging. And as Dean explained it so eloquently, you know, justice is what you do when you're uncertain. I would add there are a couple of lessons that we felt we took away from the series and, and maybe viewers feel this way themselves. But, you know, as Jerry says at the end of episode, oh God, now I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, at the end of episode nine. nine, he says essentially that any of us can be accused, can find ourselves accused. And I think we felt he was sort of mentioning the relatability of all this to viewers. And that was really impactful for us to hear that and to contemplate that and just how scary that is because we don't have control if someone accuses us of something and, and can't necessarily defend ourselves or disprove it. So that's pretty terrifying. And, you know, another thing that we learned is that, you know, when there's a wrongful conviction, that means that the wrong guy or person is in prison and the actual perpetrator is still out there. So if we as a society are interested in protection and, and safe streets, essentially, we should also be interested in trying to get it right. We should be interested in justice. So those are two, two main things we took away. We have a question from the audience about how social class is such a factor in this story. How did you think about that? You know, class is not only about how much money you have in the bank, but it's about your access to resources, your, your power, essentially. And what we found was Stephen was most powerful in that window between 2003 after he'd been exonerated up until early November of 2005 before he was arrested in the Halbach case. But once he was accused, I mean, he lost all his power, I would argue. I mean, he, it's interesting to look at Stephen's position relative to Brendan's because when Stephen settled the lawsuit, he came into some money and he had 
the opportunity to hire private attorneys, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting. Up until that point, he was being represented by the Public Defender's Office from Manitowoc County. So Stephen, you know, was no longer indigent, and he had private attorneys, whereas Brendan, we see what happened with Brendan. He had his first appointed counsel. That person <laughs> stepped down the very day he met Brendan. He went in to, to Brendan's initial appearance, said, and you see it in the series, essentially, this kid only did the things he did because his uncle made him. And then he said, you know, we're going to waive his right to a preliminary hearing, and then stepped down as the kid's lawyer, citing as his conflict that he was a cousin of the victim. And then who replaces him but Len Kaczynski? I don't know, Steve, if you want to pick up more on how class played a part in this, or Moira. Well, I've had a lot of people talk to me about the series, and they've made the same point, which is how class plays a role. And where you really see that is in the first of Stephen's cases. In the second of Stephen's cases, Stephen had about as good a defense as he could have gotten. He had two lawyers, both of whom were excellent. He, I, hell, I mean, I, you know, I kind of picked them out and <laughs> told them that those, those should be the lawyers. I mean, I, and I didn't, I don't take that lightly. I mean, Stephen was somebody that I'd grown close to. And it, you also need to understand that we're conducting these depositions and we're cheek to jowl. I mean, Steve is sitting, if I'm doing the questioning, Walt is sitting here and I'm over there talking to the witness and Steve is sitting here. And whenever there's a recess, we're talking about his new truck or his new girlfriend or the problems that she's got or his mom or you know something. And then to get a telephone call saying that the guy has been, been arrested or is in the process of being arrested for a homicide, my spouse could tell you that, I mean, I was so physically sickened by this. And understand, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't a, a new kid on the block at that stage. I mean, I'd, I'd been doing this stuff for 30 years. That I literally went into bed, pulled the covers over my head, and said, I don't want to talk to anybody. Because the phone was ringing off the hook, and I said, I don't want to talk to anybody because I don't know for sure what I'll say. And so I, you know, let's, let's uh, pretend we're Buddha and practice a divine silence. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it just, uh, just seemed the, the thing to do. Stephen, I understand why you, as a criminal defense attorney, responds positively to the series. I wonder if you can give us insight, as a resident of Wisconsin, how other people in the state are reacting. Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of hostility toward these two women uh, on the theory that they have played Wisconsin unfairly. Then among those people who think and who are a little more educated and are a little more thoughtful about these sorts of issues, there's uh, appreciation because these are facts that need to be told. And these are issues that need to be developed. And I mean, I, for a long time, I've been a member of the board of directors of something called the Wisconsin Innocence Project. It's that group which technically freed Steve in the sexual assault case. They're the ones who came in after Rob Hennick and I had taken our shot at the DNA evidence, and they took theirs at the point when timing was better. 
shortly after Stephen was charged in this case, they delisted him, if you will, from their list of exonerees. They took him off their website. It was as though they were embarrassed about it. <laughs> My immediate reaction when you asked me the question was going to say, well, Tom, it's actually cold as hell in Wisconsin. That's, that's, the, temp that's the temperature there. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the reality is that that's also kind of the way people were responding to this. Your approach to this filmmaking was very deliberate and patient. But since the series has aired, the dynamic has completely changed. People now respond quickly on Twitter to any new theory or piece of evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's frustrating, to say the least, to, you know, read an article more or less accusing us of our motives or accusing us of leaving things out, and there's 12 factual errors in the two paragraphs of the article. And, you know, our integrity is in question where, and they're journalists. And, I mean, so we just sort of have to disengage from that and um, try to have more meaningful conversations. I mean, why is it that the Wisconsin Supreme Court says these cases aren't even worth looking at? Not they're not worth getting a new trial. They're not even worth putting a question mark at the end of that. Those are things we need to be talking about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's quite natural that people are taking to social media to, to talk about this. I think it's quite natural, you know, that people started a petition, signed a petition. I mean, what we've found is, in what we've been able to read, is, you know, that people were, were moved by the series. Some people talked about how they were horrified or they were outraged. And to us, it seemed like people were looking for a way to voice that and to take action, but part of the problem is that we're not aware of what mechanisms are in place to engage with these problems. And you know, and then that sort of places us in potentially a whole new role of like, do we help direct our viewers to help them understand what they can do or you know, what action they can take or how they can get involved? And I don't feel like I'm in a position to do that right now. You know, I I mean I we've tried, we did a Twitter Q&A, we've tried to encourage people um, to do, you know, some basic things. But I would say that, you know, look to organizations, for instance, that already exist to deal with the system. And you could go, for instance, to the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth website, the people who are representing Brendan Dassey, if you're interested, and look at the types of reform that they're proposing that can reduce the risks of juveniles in the system or false confessions. So if, if that's of interest to you, you can do something like that. Well, I think one of the important things to remember is though we followed this one case and though this one case was this extraordinary opportunity, it really was a window into the system. And what you see playing out in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, is not necessarily so different than what's happening in your hometown. So, I mean, we encourage viewers to be engaged locally. That, you know, in this case, many of the actors here are elected officials, most district attorneys, most sheriffs. These are elected people. And you can, you can voice your opinion. You can watch what they're doing and hold them accountable for their actions. What's it been like for you to be in the heat of debate around this series? Well, it's all very new to us. I mean, I never dealt with the press, really, except, you know, 
in the context of making this. Um, so to be the subject is different. We're very grateful, first of all, that, that people have watched the series and have engaged with it and taken to social media to talk about it and are here tonight. I mean, we're, we're thrilled about that because we made the series to promote a dialogue and we feel like there's so much more to talk about. And so one of the aspects of coverage that's been challenging for us is trying to understand the nature of it, the you know the motivations um, of it. I mean, it's in many ways taken on a life of its own. And I mean, I cannot keep up with the headlines that are sent to us every day, the the tweets. We appreciate it, but I, I can't keep up with it. I certainly can't engage with all of it. Question from the audience for Stephen Glynn. Do you think it's possible that Stephen Avery could be found innocent at this point? Yes. I mean, he could he could get a new trial. Uh, the new trial could have new evidence. The new evidence could cause a reasonable jury to say there's reasonable doubt. So, yes, and again, people, I, I, this, is, this is one of the things that I used to beat the drums on loud and hard, and that is that the single best change that could be made in the American criminal justice system is to change one word, and that is on a jury verdict, no longer have it say guilty or not guilty, have it say proven or not proven. Because that is what our system's about, and juries who understand that acquit when they, when they have questions. And juries, juries who don't convict, even when they shouldn't. Laura Moira, as a final question, as this story keeps unfolding, what are your plans? Well, I mean, we hope to have more events like this to be able to speak to our viewers. I mean, we're so grateful for this opportunity and we're grateful for all of you. I mean, as Laura mentioned, you know, throughout this whole process, the shooting and this, especially in the long years of editing, you know, we always had our viewers in mind. You know, we were often told, you know, you can't change television. People have short attention spans. You know, these, that character isn't compelling or, but we did have faith that people would be interested in an in-depth look at things. People would have patience to sit in a scene and absorb it. And we are grateful that people have watched. And we hope to have more opportunities to really speak about everything that gets churned up and that comes up in the series. Well, I'll just add, I mean, we have gotten the question about whether we plan to continue to document this story. I mean, from our perspective, it's obviously not over. It's real life, and the cases are both still pending. We have no idea when the magistrate will make a decision in Brendan's case, but we do know that two potential outcomes there are the judge could release Brendan, essentially, or order his release, or the judge could order a new trial. So, you know, we're on the edge of our seats about that. And Stephen Avery has new counsel. We've spoken with Kathleen Zellner a couple of times now and talked to her about the prospect of filming with her. So, um, you know, and we continue to speak to Stephen and record those conversations. So to the extent there are significant developments, we would like to continue documenting this. I want to thank the directors of Making a Murderer, Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos, along with editor Mary Manhart, attorney Stephen Glynn, and the team at Netflix for participating in this conversation. 
In our next episode, we talk to veteran directors Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado, who run the production company World of Wonder. Their latest film is Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures. The revelation was that he was so honest about what he was doing, even if it was at his own expense, even if it meant people wouldn't like him. And I think he was like a beacon of documentary art. You know, he it wasn't just that he took these amazing pictures. It was also that he wanted he wanted the pictures and his story to be told because the ultimate work of art was Robert's life. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., coordinating producer Rachel Fishman Federson, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.